As we began on Sunday, John chapter 6 starts out with the fourth of seven signs. The feeding of the 5,000, where as you recall, Jesus miraculously served quite a lunch. I would call it a power lunch. (laughs) It is the backdrop for our study tonight. Immediately after the fourth sign, however, there is a fifth sign that comes right on its heels, a supernatural stroll across the sea. As Jesus walks upon the water, we're going to take it up on Sunday. We're going to pick up with Jesus meeting up with him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Canaret, the Sea of Tiberias, as John sometimes calls it, in a little fishing village, Capernaum, or Kafar Nahum. Verse 22, picking up there the next day, so day after the feeding of the 5,000, The crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23 says, There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now verse 23 is is an explanation of kind of what's going on there, that there was a little boat, Jesus and the disciples' boat. In fact, there's a boat in Israel that we've talked about before, discovered in the mid-80s, it's called the Jesus Boat. And it's a 12-man fishing boat. You can Google it and see a picture of it. But up close, it's absolutely stunning to realize that the fishing boat that they would get into with all of His disciples and Jesus was not much longer than this stage right here. Not a real big vessel. And that vessel was there, but that vessel had departed. And the people knew the apostles took it, but Jesus wasn't with them. But other small boats from Tiberias had come around and had uh, put in right there on the shore. So the people jump in all of these boats. They head across the water to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And I love that phrase. They came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Lord, we come tonight to Capernaum seeking Jesus. We come to the village of comfort. And I pray, Father, that not only will there be education and even revelation tonight... But I pray for comfort. I pray, Lord, that you will bear us up for the sake of the kingdom. And so we come to Capernaum seeking Jesus tonight. Holy Spirit, will you teach us? In Jesus' name, Amen. Whenever we seek Jesus, we come to the village of comfort. I just like that phrase. They came to Capernaum. They came to Capernaum, the village of comfort, seeking Jesus. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. 2 Corinthians 1, 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, Paul writes, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. That may be all that you need to hear tonight. It's not all I'm going to say. But it may be all you need to hear. May we always find our comfort first and foremost in Jesus. There are so many other things that the world says, take this, it will comfort you. Drink this, it will comfort you. Relax on this, it will comfort you. Go there, it will comfort you. And the Lord says, comfort, oh comfort my people, says the Lord your God. 
seek comfort in Jesus. Verse 25, so they come to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They didn't understand. Now wait a minute. Now you're here. You were there. The apostles went there. You went up into the hills and now you're here. So they're on to something happened here. They they don't know what it is. They're confused by it. See, the last they had seen Jesus, He was hightailing it up into the Golan Heights. He was getting out of there. He had dispersed the crowd, sent the disciples on their way. Remember, He did that because their desire was to force the kingdom then and there. They were looking to, to harness the power of Christ for a holy war against Rome. Well, Jesus wouldn't have it. And I remind you of what we talked about Sunday well, Pastor Bob Caldwell said, if you only agree with Jesus when He agrees with you, you really don't believe in Jesus. So they come and they ask Him, when did you get here? And I love it because Jesus doesn't answer when He came. What He does is He turns the question around to answer why they came. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. If if I made an offer to you tonight, in all seriousness, if I said you have two choices tonight, you you can sit through the teaching for the next three and a half hours, (laughs) or, or, I will give you a complimentary $500 gift card to Costco. What would you do? What would you take? We live in a Costco culture. No offense to Costco, but it's just the way it is. Gang, we live in the Amazon.com one-click ordering society. We are the Netflix nation. We live in a day and a time where immediate gratification seems to be the highest principle of living. Give it to me quick, give it to me now, as fast as possible, don't make me wait for it. And this is what we've all become accustomed to. The thing is, all these things that we get so quickly, all these things that we dive into, by tomorrow they're moldy. And they're stale. And they are not what they were yesterday when we purchased them. Jesus' words here bear the message of the prophets when He says, you seek Me not for signs, but because you ate the food. You got the quick fix. You had the power lunch. And that impressed you, and so you're back for more. That's all you really want, Jesus says. Well, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55 verse 1 said, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. I love that. You who have no money, come buy and eat. How am I going to buy if I have no money? He goes on. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, the Lord says. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And so now Jesus is going to grab hold of that miracle of the day before. The feeding of the 5,000, which you know was intentional. It was planned out. 
It was Passover season. Jesus knew the unleavened bread was on the Jewish mind. And He went for this miracle. And now the next day, He's going to go for the teaching to explain and apply what had just happened. And He does the same thing that He did with the Samaritan woman and the water. Only now it's bread. Remember what He said to her? John 14.13 Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Well here, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. And He's going to make the same application, but with bread. Eat the bread that doesn't go stale. Eat the bread that doesn't go bad. Eat the bread that lasts for eternity, not what you just ate yesterday. Now notice, in verse 27, He calls Himself very clearly the Son of Man. Eat the bread that the Son of Man will give to you. He doesn't say Messiah. He's downplaying their immediate messianic militancy. He's not going to feed into that. Eat the bread the Son of Man, referring to Himself, will give to you. But note this, He delicately balances this Son of Man with His godly divine authority because He says, on Him the Father God has set His seal. Son of Man is here with bread, sealed by God Himself. What was the seal? I think it was the Holy Spirit at His baptism. And if we look back, John 1, verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent Me to baptize in water, He said to Me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the One who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen, John the Baptist said, and have testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus has the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit upon Him. The One on whom, the Son of Man, on whom God has set His seal. And it's important that we know that the seal has been upon Jesus because the food He offers is not FDA approved. If you're you're turning the bag of bread around and trying to find where does this come from, what's the value of it, is it any good, is it okay to eat? Jesus says, look, let me tell you how okay it is. I have the Father's seal. Jesus bears the Father's seal of approval. So do you. And so do I if we're in Christ Jesus. He approves. The stamp of approval. The seal of His Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, therefore, verse 28, they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, before I get to this rather lame question, you need to understand this back and forth was typical in the synagogue system of today. In fact, they even had a, a phrase for it. They called it the freedom of the synagogue. The synagogue was a place of learning. It wasn't so much a a church building, a temple, as we might think of of, of a a church building today, or even the temple back then. No, they would go to the temple for sacrifices. They would go to the temple primarily for worship. The synagogue was a study hall. 
It was a meeting place. Yes, worship would take place there, but it was primarily about study and learning thanks to Ezra and his cohorts back 500 years earlier. They started realizing that people need to know the Word. And so they started studying the Word and teaching the Word. And in the synagogue, these kinds of exchanges would take place. The rabbi would come and he began to teach and talk. And the people would start firing off questions. We're not going to do that here. We may sometime. But that was typical in the synagogue system. And this exchange, as you will see down later in the passage, took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. I get a little smile because some of you have stood in that synagogue. Or at least in the one that was built right above it. And you can look down and you can see original floor from the first century where, where that original synagogue stood. So they're in the synagogue at Capernaum. And the people respond, okay, alright, you're telling us you have this food that endures to eternal life. That sounds good. That sounds great. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? He said, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures. Okay, we want to do that work. We're willing to put in our effort, our labor. What do we have to do? It is a typical human response to God. It's the basis of all religions. What must I do? How must we work the works of God? The Muslim says, keep the pillars. And by the way, that's exactly what ISIS is doing. ISIS is keeping the five pillars of Islam. ISIS is restoring ancient Islam. They are doing exactly what Muhammad did. When you hear people say, well, this is an extreme thing. This is an extreme form of Islam. I'm sorry, but if you look at history, if you read your history, you go back to about 625, 630 or so A.D., you'll see exactly what was taking place there. And ISIS is simply doing that. Keep the five pillars and take out the infidel. The Hindu would say, try, try again. When you come back, try again. And just keep trying. You know, the Buddhist would say, sit tight. (laughs) Practice makes perfect. A Mormon might tell you to go to temple, wear the holy underwear, do the mission. (laughs) But with every religion, with every group, anytime, I'll tell you what, anytime someone comes up to you and says, here's how you get to heaven and starts to lay out the things that you must do, it is a cult or it is a false religion. Because that is not of God. You might say, well, well, wait a minute, Rick. The Jewish people would say, got to keep the law. Well, we know that God gave the law to show our need for Him. He gave the law so that we would realize we couldn't keep the law. That we had to have grace if we had any hope at all. It was going to be a work of God, not a work of man. Romans 9.31 says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Oh, they got in the car. They made good time, but they never got there. They never arrived. Paul is addressing this to the church at Colossae. And in chapter 2 of that book, verse 20, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, 
Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He says, these matters... These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but listen, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let me repeat that line. I'm going to add a word to it. Religion is of no value against fleshly indulgence. What do you mean, Paul? Why doesn't religion help us Keep from indulging in the flesh. Because the rules of all religion only indulge the very worst part of our flesh, our pride. That's what religion does. The more I keep of it, the more righteous I am, and the more I'm better than the rest of y'all. And so my pride, I may be denying myself all these other areas, but my pride is getting fed, man. And that's what religion does. Religion always ends up glorifying or abasing man, whereas following Jesus just glorifies Jesus. The difference is so stark. So the answer to their question, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God, is to me the most important thing Jesus ever said. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's so simple. It's got to be believe in Jesus and. Believe in Him whom He sent in addition to. Or start by believing in Him whom He has sent and then do. See, that's what my flesh wants. My flesh wants to prove myself. I've told you before, there's not going to be a single human being in eternity who will be able to prove their right to be there. Not one of us. Every one of us when asked, how did you get here? will say, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did you do to get here? I just believed in Him. It's His grace. It was His work. And as you'll find out in just a few minutes, even the faith to believe in Him came from Him. And it has nothing to do with what I am capable of doing. The sum of all the workings of grace and salvation, every hope, Every healing comes by entrusting oneself to Jesus. And so he says, that's it. That's the work. Now they did understand this much. They knew he was talking about himself. When he said, you've got to believe in the one whom he has sent, they respond in verse 30 saying, well, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work Do you perform? Are you kidding me? Really? And even verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They hadn't even finished digesting the meal from the day before, and they want more. Another miracle. Another sign. Feed us. Feed us. They're they're like the the big plant on Little Shop of Horrors. (laughs) Feed me, Jesus. (laughs) I 
don't know where that came from. They're like, they're like sitting in the beef eater restaurant in London. I don't even know if it's still there, but it was the coolest place. When I was a freshman in high school, our marching band went on a tour of, of Great Britain. Played all around in these different places, and one of the stops, one night, we came into this restaurant. This looked like this big tower. We came into it, and it was the Beef Eaters of London. We came in, and we sit down, and everybody was all dressed in old, old, you know, ancient garb of like the 1500s, and they came in, and they had these big mugs, apple juice for us, because we were all in high school, and they began to bring out food, and they trained us right up front. you got to ask for it like, you know, old Britain. So when you're done eating and you want more, you take those big heavy mugs and you start banging them on the table saying, Bring on the next remove! Bring on the next remove! Oh, for high school students, it was heaven. (laughs) We just ate and we pounded and we were allowed, Bring on the next! You know, and that's what the people are doing with Jesus. More bread! More bread! More bread! Feed us! Thrill us! Impress us! Do for us, Jesus! You know, Jesus never advises believers to follow after signs and wonders. He discourages it. Now, understand, what He actually said was the opposite. Signs and wonders will follow them who believe. So so it's not a cancellation of the miraculous. It's not an abdication of the supernatural. It's Jesus saying, you follow Me, and the signs and wonders will come after. Healings. Salvation, compassion, people saved, people loved, bodies changed, healed. The signs, the spiritual gifts, they will follow you, but you are not to pursue them. What did Paul say was the one thing we were to pursue? 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Sorry, it was a trick question. There are lots of things we could pursue. And righteousness is definitely one of them. But love. And he drops that in 1 Corinthians 13, right between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. I know, brilliant, right? Because in 12 and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about power. And in the midst of it, he stops and goes, but you know what? Let me, let me show you a more excellent way. Love. You love and as Jesus said in Mark 16, 17, the signs will follow them that believe. But don't go chasing after them. If you go chasing signs and wonders, all they'll do is make you hungry for more signs and wonders. Just like the people. Jesus said to hunger and thirst after righteousness, Matthew 5, 6, and you'll get filled up. Verse 32. So He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. They just said, well, you know, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat and they're implying Moses. said, it wasn't Moses that did that. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God, note that phrase, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Every instance of bread in the Hebrew Scriptures was greater than provision. 
is there for a greater purpose simply than God feeding His people. The manna in the wilderness, yes, He provided the manna, and it was great godly provision by great godly mercy. As the people wandered through the wilderness for 38 years, God gave them the bread. He fed them. Every single day, great provision. But the manna was more than simply provision. The manna was a picture of something bigger. Same with the bread of God. The bread of God. What what do you mean the bread of God? Verse 33 there. Jesus uses a phrase that would be very familiar to the Jewish people and it would ping in their minds. They would recall immediately the bread of God, the showbread in the holy place of the temple. It's very specifically called the bread of God. Uh, Speaking to the priests... In the line of Aaron, Leviticus 21 verse 6 says, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God. So they shall be holy. You shall consecrate Him, Leviticus 21 verse 8, Therefore, for He offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I the Lord who sanctifies you am holy. Now in Leviticus 21 verse 6, he says they present offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God. You might assume, okay, well that's like the lambs and the rams and the bulls, you know, the sacrifices, right? And then again in verse 8, you shall consecrate him for he offers the food of your God. Well, the word food in the Hebrew is lechem. As in bet lechem, house of bread. It is the bread of God. Our translation misses that. I don't know why it doesn't just say bread. Because that's the implication. The bread of God, the show bread, the holy bread in the holy place of the temple. The Lord, all the way down through the years, was prepping His people. Both with the manna and the show bread, the feast of unleavened bread, all of the bread references you can find in the Hebrew Scriptures are all coming down to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Who would, by the way, come from heaven like the manna was heavenly sent, so Jesus would come from heaven to be born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. It was all a massive, beautiful teaching so that the people could see these things. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and now starts talking about the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven, wow, put two and two together and you will get four. But they were getting like three. Or 2.5. Verse 34. Then they said to Him, Lord, always give us this bread. Now get this, they are still thinking physical wonder bread. They're still thinking manna type thing. A bread, yeah, bring this bread on. A bread that can outlast the manna? Because manna had some problems. For one thing, it was only good that day. And for another thing, it really only lasted their time in the wilderness. Joshua 5.12 says the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that first year. Isn't that great? I mean, that's just... Talk about the mercy and the compassion of God. They come into the promised land, they bite a piece of fruit, and that's it, no more manna. You don't need it now. But He provided up until that point. Give us this bread! And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And now Jesus is going to throw out three major faith statements in the synagogue in Capernaum. Three pitches followed by three strikes. Pitch number one, I am the bread of life. Here it is. The great application. You know, this is where he drops it on them. The feeding yesterday, that, that bread feeding that you had, that you experienced, that was all to get you ready for this. Here we go. Ready? Da, da, da. I am the bread of life. It's me. It's the first of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. He will say, I am the bread of life. He will say, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the vine. And you are the branches. I am, I am, I am, I am. And every time, I'll stop and we'll point these out as we go through them. But tonight is the first one. I am the bread of life. By the way, three times Jesus is going to say, I am, as a standalone. He's just going to say, I am. He'll say it, as we'll talk about Sunday, as He's walking across the Sea of Galilee and they see Him, He will say, I am. John 6, verse 20. John 8, verse 58, in a classic confrontation argument between Jesus and the Pharisees and He wins. He says, Truly, truly, I I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And He just lets the words hang there in the air and they freak out. I'm looking forward to that teaching. And there's one more time. And it is, I think, the most powerful moment of Jesus speaking those two words, I am. Am John 18, verse 4. In Gethsemane, says Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon Him, went forth and said to them, that is Judas and the soldiers and the, the, the Jews there, Whom do you seek? They said to Him, Jesus the Nazarene. And He said to them, I am! Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Wow. Here's this dusty little rabbi from Galilee, praying with his buds there in Gethsemane. And a Roman cohort comes out, armed, ready to take out this villain. And this rabbi standing there. This is who He came to arrest. But when He says, I am, there is such power in the words, they fall back, John says. And that's what I'm going to watch when we get to heaven. I want, I want to see that replay. I mean, that, that would be amazing. Who do you see? Jesus of Nazarene. I am. Boom! It's like that, that YouTube video. Have you seen that? Everybody do the flop. You guys haven't seen that. It's, it's a cartoon. you got to look it up. It's hilarious. My kids show me these things. <laughs> it's a little stick figure. A bunch of them all lined up. And it just goes, everybody do the flop. And they all just hit the ground. But that's what they did. The Romans. Jesus might as well have said, everybody do the flop. Because they did. I am. Boom. Down they go. I am. 
What's the big deal with I am? I think you know. In the Greek, it's ego me. Ego me. The Hebrew equivalent is Yahweh. And it's what the Lord said when Moses spoke to him, Exodus 3.13, Behold, I am going to, to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they may say to me, What's His name? What do I say to them? Moses asked the Lord. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Good enough? <laughs> Yahweh. The seven I am statements of Jesus. They are all expressions of or traits of the I am nature of God in Christ. And so we come to this first one and he says, I am the bread of life. I am. God is the bread of life. And in every culture of every age, bread is the substance of life. I am sustenance. But game. when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, He is saying more than simply, I am your sustenance. The of life part of the phrase means that without this bread, not only could we not live, we would not even exist. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread not only who sustains life, I'm the bread who gives life. You have life because of the bread of life. I am. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And again, it is absolutely remarkable that they ask for another sign after the previous day's luncheon. I just. And and remember what happened before Jesus fed the 5,000? What did Matthew and Mark tell us? He was teaching them, Mark says, I believe, teaching them with words of authority and grace. I mean, as Jesus spoke, people came from miles just to hear Him. Amazing power in His words. And He was healing them, Matthew tells us. Or Mark said, the two, one of us tell, one tells us He taught, the other says He was healing. But He was doing both in the lead up to feeding this massive multitude of people. Healing and teaching, and then He, he brings on this great miracle of feeding. And still they have the gall to say, what are you going to do? What are you going to show us? And Jesus says, you've seen me and you do not believe. I've shown you. And you're not getting it. Sometimes we say things like, how could the ancient Israelites go through the desert with God and not believe? It's just remarkable. He delivers them from Egypt. The ten plagues, they see the plagues. And the plagues don't affect them, by the way. They just watch the plagues all around them except for Goshen. That's cool. It's kind of like the Northwest during this winter time. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's happening here. And they see all of this. and, And they don't believe. Well, they do at first. And then they leave Egypt and they start to get hungry for leeks. Or the bitter water made sweet. And then they don't believe. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. Not the Reed Sea, by the way. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You've heard that? That it was the Reed Sea. Yeah. It's just dumb. 
two feet deep and a hot wind blew it apart so they walked through the Reed Sea. Which I've told you before is a greater miracle if it was the Reed Sea. It's a greater miracle because the entire army of of Egypt drowned in that sea. (laughs) Two feet of water. (laughs) Unbelievable. They saw water come out of a rock when Moses struck it. And they had bread from heaven every morning for 38 years. There it was on the ground just waiting for them. Picked it up. It was like coriander seed. It was sweet. It was tasty. It was good. They could make all kinds of stuff from it. We've been through the list of manna bread and manicotti and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And yet, what did they do? Mumble, mumble, murmur, murmur, whine, complain, moan, whimper. Disbelief. John 1.14 The Apostle wrote, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and note this, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, we saw His glory and believed. So, how come all of these people see these glorious signs and wonders and they still don't believe. What is the difference between those who see His glory and believe and those who see His glory and do not? And it's very simply faith. And that's where Jesus goes with this. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Behold the Son, look at Jesus, see what He does, and believe. And the Father will cause that to happen in you, for you. Because faith, as we've talked about, is a supernatural spiritual work of God. Faith is. Your faith, the very reason why as we talk about these things... Let me give you this example. I just mentioned a few minutes ago that on Sunday we're going to talk about Jesus walking on water and not a single one of you flinched. Why not? You should have. Sunday we're going to talk about Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) Whatever. I tried that when I was a kid. We had a swimming pool. And I could never get across. Even running on water doesn't work. Why didn't you flinch? Because you believe. Because you have faith. Know why you have faith? Because God put it in you. Well, no, I I chose to believe. Well, careful, pride. Religious pride, here's what I do. I generate faith, He does the rest. You don't even generate faith, folks. Not a one of us does. It comes from God and it returns to God. And God gives faith because, listen, because He knows who's going to want it. He knew you were going to want faith. So He gave you faith. 
That's how it works. Well, you'd have to be God to do that. He knew you were going to choose Him. He knew your heart's desire would be for Jesus. So He gave you the faith to believe. I think that's marvelous. And that's not predestination. It's foreknowledge. Right? I think we covered this verse recently. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. God gives faith to those who want it because He knows they're going to. He knew before you were born. Here's someone coming into the world who is going to be a believer. And so what does He do? Supernaturally gives you faith. It's why you believe. It's why you started believing. There was a moment where the light went on. The the switch flipped. And suddenly you went... I believe. Do you think you came up with that? God gives us the faith to believe. When I was a kid, I played basketball. My dad was teaching me and training me basketball. And there was something that he said to me that has stuck with me. And it stuck with my faith. But it was when I was a little bit older. I think junior high, maybe early high school basketball. And and we had a bad game. And dad said, Rick, you know why the other team won the game? Why, Dad? Because they're better than we are. No, they're not better than you are. They wanted it. And the team that wants the ball is the team that wins. I've already been telling David that. He's, you know, six years old, starting basketball. you got to want it, David. All David wants to do is run up and down the court. He thinks that's great. Give him the ball. Okay, side note. He has the ball. He's one foot from the basket. In his last game, he's standing there, and I'm on the sideline going, Shoot the ball! Shoot the ball! And here's David. Shoot it, son! Make Dad proud! And he passed. You gotta want the ball if you wanna win the game. You gotta want Jesus. And God knows those who want Him. And if you want Him, He's going to give you faith. To those who want it, He feeds you. He fills you up. As we behold and we believe in Jesus. And the reason I smile at that is because it means we can't even take pride in our faith. All the glory goes to God. As Jesus describes here in these verses, Father brings us to the Son. The Son keeps all those who come to Him. And the Son, and I love how Jesus says this, will raise Him up on the last day. I'm going to raise you up. I got you covered. What does that mean? The last day. Gang, He says it six times in this Gospel. I find all these numbers fascinating. Some mean something, others maybe not. But six times He says, I will raise you up in the last day. Why? Because man can't do it. And six is the number of a man. Man can't raise himself up, but Jesus can And I will do it. I will raise you up. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death, which is spiritual, eternal death, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The last day on which Jesus will raise us up begins with the rapture of the church. The last day begins with the catching up The harpazo in the Greek. Of all those who have beheld and believed in the Son, He will raise us up. And that last day ends with the very last person 
who will believe in Jesus on the earth. And by my calculations, that will be at some point around the midpoint of the tribulation. Because after that time, the Bible is very clear, no one will repent. The last day, Jesus says, I will raise up everyone who beholds and believes. Verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, this is not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. (laughs) Wow. Like forefathers, like sons. Psalm 106.24 says they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Talked about grumbling recently. I don't remember if it was a Sunday or a Wednesday, but I mentioned, you know, we talked about grumbling a little bit. Not because anyone here has a problem with it, but just covering the, the topic of grumbling. And Cheryl tagged me like two days later. She always does this. You need to know, if I preach something, she's going to hold me to it. And so she said, you're grumbling. And I said, well, you're grumbling about my grumbling. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. When the Bible says that they grumbled in their tents, it is the worst kind of gossip. Hear me on this. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, everybody, listen. To go into our houses, to close our doors, and to start murmuring and grumbling, it's the worst kind of gossip. Because it builds up. It's like earwax. It just builds up. And it gets thicker and harder. And it plugs your ability to hear the voice of God. Grumbling in the home. Well, it's just me and the wife talking. You know, I'm just so tired of that pastor talking about grumbling all the time. (laughs) Grumbling behind closed doors. Well, it's my home. I can grumble there. It's not a good idea. If you want to hear the voice of God, thanksgiving will open your ears to the voice of God. Gratitude, praise and worship, words of encouragement, whatsoever is true, you know the whole list. Whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is honest. Think on these things. But grumbling. Paul says, Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Let me just tell you this, it's very easy for me to look like a light in the world here at church. When I'm Pastor Rick. It's easy. It is so easy to fool people into thinking I'm something holy. Mike's laughing because he knows me too well. It is. It's so easy to do. But when I'm at home, and I'm around my kids, and my wife, and everyday life is happening, and, and the guard is down, man, that's the time. 
Paul says, don't grumble so you'll be blameless and innocent. Where? Behind closed doors. As much as out in the world. Don't grumble. Verse 44, Jesus says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Can Jesus be any more clear? doesn't matter what your theology was when you walked in the room tonight. Jesus said, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you to me. It is a work of God, not a work of man. Based on the choice that God knows you're going to make. So, you know, He hasn't taken that away from you. That's what's wonderful about God's foreknowledge. But I love the word here. Unless the Father draws Him. The word is halkuo in the Greek. And it means to pull with an inward force. And it's the way I always imagine the scene on the train station platform in Prince Caspian. You know, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis book about the, the four Pavensi children. There's Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they, they get pulled into this fantasy world of Narnia. And there are all kinds of biblical implications throughout the, the book series. Great book series. Second book, Prince Caspian. The kids are back home. They're kind of disappointed they didn't get to stay in Narnia and be kings and queens. They're sitting on a train platform ready to be sent back to school for the year. Ugh. And as they sit there, all of a sudden, Lucy goes, ow! Peter's like, what? I just felt like something was pulling me. And Susan goes, ow! And, 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 uh, and all of a sudden, they all are, they, and they realize something's happening, so they grab hold of each other and they get pulled right back into Narnia. It's a cool book. But I've read that and I always think about the Father draws me. He pulls with an inward force. It's like He gets hold of my heart and starts pulling from the inside out. i got to go where Jesus is. i got to be where He is. Because I'm getting drawn there. I'm getting pulled there. And note this. God gets into the heart and begins to tug. And for some, it's very gentle. There may be people in your life You've been talking to about Jesus. You've been praying for. You've been working on. And you're like, why doesn't God just slap them upside the head, grab hold of their scruff of their collar, and pull them in here? He is pulling very gently. Because that's what they need. That's the way God recognizes. i I, I got to be tender and gentle. Some of us, you know, we need to get pulled, and I mean pulled forcefully by the Lord. And God does it both ways. Well, how do you know that? Jeremiah 31, verse 3, The Lord appeared to him, that is Israel, from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Talk about forcefully pulling while the people are kicking and screaming. God says, I have drawn Israel. He is still drawing Israel to Himself. Jesus says in John 12:32, and I if I if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to myself. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Now he's quoting Isaiah 54 verse 13 directly. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. What is Jesus indicating? What is He saying here 
that all will be taught of God. With the first coming of Jesus, an age was dawning in which individuals could be individually taught by the Lord Himself. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, with the beginning of the church, and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, guess what? No prophets or priests need apply. You don't need a prophet. You don't need a priest. You don't even need a Bible teacher, gang. 1 John 2.27, John writes, As for you, the anointing which you received from Him, that seal of the Holy Spirit that's on you when you believe, abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Kind of makes my job irrelevant. Doesn't it? Now I know Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So I get it. You know, God gives us each other. And God gives us uniquely to equip one another and to serve together and to grow up together as His people. I get all that, but I maintain the best teaching you will ever get is direct from the Holy Spirit of the Lord. And it's not from me. It's not from John Corson. You know, it's not from Daniel Fusco or, or any of these guys. It's not from Levi Lusco. What is it with the Scos? there are all kinds of great Bible teachers out there and I encourage you to listen to some of these guys I mentioned Pastor Bob Caldwell he is just a blast to listen to all these guys have teaching online you can listen to them and be taught and it's wonderful but if you hang your hat on the words of a human Bible teacher you're selling yourself short the Holy Spirit is the best teacher you can ever have well how does that work? open your Bible Look at a passage, and before you read it, say, Father, would you teach me now what this means? Will you explain to me? Will you help me understand? And then you listen as you read. It's what I do. The best stuff I get comes straight from the Holy Spirit. Now, Isaiah's prophecy that they shall all be taught of God began to be fulfilled in the church, the promise fulfilled in the fact that the Spirit is our teacher, the Spirit does teach us directly, but also He is speaking of, and Jesus is referencing, they shall all be taught of God, the coming kingdom, when the nations will stream up to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of Jesus for Bible teaching. Now that is going to be amazing. I can't wait. The turnout will be huge. All the nations. Partially because if they don't come, they're not going to get rain. But let's not talk about that right now. Verse 46. Not that everyone has seen the Father, Jesus says, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He is continuing to drive this point home to a people who have seen Him. They've seen His power at work. 
But they're not believing. And he keeps saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And he keeps saying, I came down from heaven, I came down from heaven. And here he says, I've seen God. What? The Lord said to Moses, no one can see God and live. Well, what are you talking about, you've seen God? Well, the only person who can see God and live is God. And I have come from heaven, Jesus says. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Miracle bread, but it could not sustain them forever. Verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What was the shelf life of manna? One day. We got Twinkies that last longer than that. A lot longer. In fact, we got Twinkies, I think, that last roughly 40 years. If they tried to save the manna, you know what happened? The next morning, they got up, looked in the bag of manna, and it was a maggot meal. Exodus 16.20, some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul overnight. God was not about to let them store up the manna. It would be provided as they needed it every day. Every single day. Hey, guess what? The shelf life of the bread of life is eternity. This is so much better than manna, Jesus is saying. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He's pushing the point here. (laughs) If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Pitch number two, the bread is my flesh. Pitch number one, I am the bread of life, and they swung and missed. They don't believe Him. So He takes it a step further. The bread is my very flesh. Strike two. Jesus had given them so much time to understand. He's he's teaching. Kind of with us tonight, we're walking through this and He's teaching and He's explaining to help them understand the miracle and that it's a picture of Him and that He is the bread and here's what all this means and they are not getting it. And His wording here is nothing less than sacrificial. The bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of Me to do Your will, O God. What does that mean? God put Me in a body. The Word became flesh. Why? To die in the flesh. To be the ultimate sacrifice in the flesh. Verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, Jesus takes their question here and makes it worse. He's really pushing them here. Now you might say, Lord, why don't you back off? Because He's got to push them to the edge of their willingness to believe. Remember that drawing of the Father? Father's drawing here. 
He is pulling on their hearts. He is tugging. And he starts gently with the bread the day before. And now it's getting more and more. For, I'm, gonna, I'm, pull, I'm giving you every opportunity to believe what I'm telling you here. And so he throws the third pitch. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Before I go any further, just understand what happened. Jesus said, the life, I, the, the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And He's talking about His own sacrifice. But it's not enough. And so He says, alright, you're not getting it. Let me make it more plain and clear and simple for you. you got to eat my flesh. you got to drink my blood. Third pitch. And on this pitch, they will strike out. Can He give us His flesh to eat? Verse 54, He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food and My blood is true drink. And He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. The word eat, back in verse 52, is the word phagion in the Greek. And it just means to eat. In verse 54, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh, Jesus uses a different word there. (laughs) The word is trogion. And it is munch on. It's not just eat. It's masticate. (laughs) It's chew on. you got to munch on this bread. In other words... The only way to have life in you is to consume me. Flesh and blood, man. you got to consume me. This is radical. It's stunning. And someone might say, is he talking about the Lord's Supper? You know what's interesting to me? John's Gospel is the only one that has no record of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in the upper room on Passover Eve. The other three Gospels tell us what happened that night is that Jesus broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And and He's passed around the wine and said, Drink this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is given for you. John comes along and doesn't even mention the breaking of the bread and the passing of the wine. He talks about washing their feet, John 13. He gives us the glorious teaching of Jesus, John 14, 15, and 16, as they move from the upper room down across the Cadron Valley and across to Gethsemane. But he never, John never talks about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper on that night of the Passover. But right here, his teaching on the eating and the drinking of his flesh and his blood fleshes out the observance of communion like I think nothing else. When was the last time on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to throw this out here for our shepherds, take this up. 
The body needs to hear this. On a Sunday morning, as we're about to break bread, as we're about to take communion, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The whole picture of communion, gang, is a symbol of getting Jesus in us. Of chewing on His words. Of swallowing His truth. Of digesting His glory. A complete invitation. And in fact, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer says this, Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on Him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. Verse 59 tells us these things He said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that His disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Don't you get it, Jesus says? You are still thinking as carnally as you were yesterday with the miracle bread. That is not what I'm talking about. Even when I say, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm not talking about cannibalism. Come on! It's spirit and life. I'm trying to get you to understand in the most base language possible spiritual things. So why were they so upsetting or or upset? Listen, it, it wasn't because Jesus was offending their kosher sensibilities. And it wasn't because of cannibalism. It was for one reason that they would not accept this. One reason alone, 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He can't. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And again, Jesus says, look, my, spirit, my words are spirit and life. What I'm teaching you is... You know what? It's far more substantive than the physical world, than your flesh. Spirit and life. And that's why he mentions his own ascension. The bread, if the bread coming down from heaven stumbles you, what about the bread going up to heaven? What then? And by the way, as we talked about back in John 3, verses 13 and 14. Stage one of Jesus' ascension was the cross. That was the first step in His returning to heaven. When He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Myself. Yes, lifted up, ascending back to heaven. But first, He must ascend on the cross. First, He must give His flesh and die. His flesh and His blood completely. And we know how offensive the cross was to the Jews. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. What did Jesus say? 
Does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Paul says Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. To Gentiles it's foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Jesus is talking spiritual. He is talking eternal. He is talking about something that is more substantive, more big, more huge, more tangible than anything in the flesh could ever be. They're still snacking at Costco. And He is speaking spirit and life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. See, foreknowledge. Jesus already knew who was going to believe and who was not. Even as He walked on the earth, He already knew the foreknowledge of God. And He knew who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him by the Father. Unless God is going to draw you, you're not going to come to Me. And I know that. And I know who will, and I know who won't, and I know Judas won't. That is so interesting because that means Jesus knew when He asked Judas to be an apostle that Judas was the betrayer. It means Jesus called Judas because Judas was assigned that role. He wasn't predetermined to it. He was assigned it. Why? Because he would choose it. Because he would follow through with it. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. John six sixty six. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? In other words, there's the door. You know, I used to worry about teaching long, especially on Wednesday nights, middle of the week, people would be tired. How long can they really take? There's the door. Don't get up. <laughs> no, you got to leave, leave. There's the door. And Jesus says to His apostles, there's the door, guys. I'm not forcing you to be here. I'm not going to make you be a Christian. The only reason you were drawn to Me because was because you wanted to be. Are you going to leave too? He lays it out, complete freedom. Talk about less holding someone with an open hand. That's what Jesus does. Completely open hand. And I'm not going to take you anywhere you don't want to go. Unless you want me to. And then, I got you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, He humbled you and let you be hungry. He fed you with the manna that you did not know, nor did your fathers know, but that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so when Jesus says, You don't want to go away also, do you? Peter answers Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? And I love this epic moment for Peter. You have the words of eternal life. We have come, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Guess what? Peter got it. He wasn't confused by the manna. In this moment, Peter got it. He understood gloriously. And I know Jesus must have been pleased. When Peter said that, where are we going to go? You have the, listen, the words of eternal life. 
the bread of life. The manna. It's you, Lord. And it's what comes from you. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You have the words of eternal life. It's you. We're here. And we ain't going anywhere, Peter says. And I I can just imagine Jesus looking at Peter with that look that just says, You got it, Petey. (laughs) You got it. And with a twinkle in his eye and a tear. He says, verse 70, Did I myself not choose you? I chose you, Peter. And the twelve, and one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Listen, Judas was never confused. Judas was not a misguided militant Jew trying like the people who were fed there on the the hills of the Galilee. He was not one who was thinking, well, maybe if I do this, I can force Jesus' hand into leading us. I can call Him out as Messiah. If I betray Him, then actually it's a good thing. And that is another one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. It's right there up with the Reed Sea. Liberal theologians who try to work out the possibility that Judas was trying to do a good thing but just made a major error. No! The Bible is absolutely clear, undeniably, Judas was bad to the bone. Jesus calls him a diabolos. It doesn't get more definite than that. Jesus says, one of you is a devil. Jesus would say in Mark 14, 21, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The word born, ganao, conceived. Would have been better for Judas if he had never even been conceived. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Jesus wouldn't have said that if everybody was going to be saved. If salvation was universal, Jesus never would have said that about Judas. But as it is, you can know and be assured, and John will make this even more clear by the end of the book, that Judas is just a bad guy. Why does John end with this statement? You know, I think, for one thing, because that's what Jesus said. That's a simple answer. The spiritual answer is this. Jesus' words are eternal words of life and death. Peter, at the end of this, expresses life. You alone have the words of life. Judas chose death. Both choices are eternal because these words of Jesus are eternal words of life and death. Come to Capernaum. Come to Capernaum. These things He said to them, John says, verse 59, at Capernaum. These things He said, speaking of the bread of life, at the village of comfort. Because they are intended to be comforting words of eternal life. And Paul says in Colossians 3.4, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory.